It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When a U.S. Marine and his team are sent to a cave to do some reconnaissance on an enemy faction, they realize that the dark recesses are harboring something much worse than enemy combatants. Something much, much worse. Welcome to Outdoor Terrors. The show where I regale you with real people's supposedly true stories of the terrifying things they've encountered. Out Beyond Civilization. If you have a story of your own to share, send it to me at darkstories.org. And stop by eeriecast.com if you want to hear more scary stories from our team. If you like what you hear, leave Outdoor Terrors a rating and review on Spotify and Apple. Thank you. Now get warm by the fire and try to ignore the twig that snapped behind you, as we're about to begin. The first story is titled, Bambi and Thumper vs. the Big Bad Wolf, by 19 Delta Scout. Does anyone remember watching one of the final scenes of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, where Frodo and his fellow hobbits, Samwise, Merry, and Pippin, not sure about those last two, are just sitting at the table in the middle of the festivities. All of the other hobbits were celebrating the near-impossible victory against the forces of evil, whilst Frodo and his buddies were just sitting there, stunned and shocked that they're still alive. This short scene, which only lasts a few seconds, is my favourite scene of the whole trilogy, because that one scene shows exactly what happens when soldiers return from a year of war. We would oftentimes meet at drinking establishments and sit in stunned silence, amazed that we were still alive after all the horrors we'd experienced. This was the case not too long ago, when I was with a few buddies. We were sitting in an unnamed gentleman's club out in the middle of the El Paso desert. Weird as it may sound, after coming home from a year serving in the Middle East, we felt comfortable in that lonely, out-of-the-way drinking establishment out in the South Texas desert. This is not my story, but the story of my buddy Eduardo. My name is Eduardo Acosto Bambino, and I was born in Costa Rica. When I was ten, my family immigrated to the United States, and moved to northern New York State where my father worked one full-time job and two part-time jobs to support the family. My mother was going to school to become a nurse, so that's why my father was working so hard. He did not want my mother to have to get a part-time job so that she could concentrate on becoming a nurse. I helped out as well, 
getting my six-year-old sister ready for school in the morning and picking her up in the evenings once I was done with the school day. We were renting a modest three-bedroom, two-story house within walking distance to the hospital where my mother was working as an intern. My father drove to and from his many jobs in an old red and rust-colored Dodge pickup truck. Looking back at the time, we were by no means wealthy, but we were happy, and we never lacked for food, family support, and love. One thing about our family was that we all felt immensely privileged and blessed to be Americans and living in the greatest country in the world. My father always said that we would not take one dime of government assistance or support, as receiving supposedly free things from the government actually enslaved you to the government. We had seen it all too often in South America. What the government gives, the government will take away, leaving you no choice but to think, act, and vote the way the government wants. We saw that mentality here in America as well, but like I said, my father was determined that our family would be a success without any government handouts. America was the land of opportunity, but success wasn't an entitlement. Success was there for those willing to work hard and apply their God-given gifts and talents, and that is what my family did for many years. Flash forward eight years and my family was able to move to the suburbs, and was even able to purchase a bigger house. My mother was now a full-fledged charge nurse at the hospital where she worked caring for newborn babies and infants. My father was able to purchase the grocery store, which he had worked in so many years, from the kindly old gentleman who owned it, as he was ready to retire. After only two years, we were ready to expand to two stores. My parents' persistence and determination had paid off, and although we weren't what most folks would call filthy rich, we weren't exactly hurting for money either. My mother's salary paid for the mortgage on our house, and the profits from our family business paid the bills, and the upkeep of my father's new Dodge truck and my mother's Honda SUV. Everything else went into savings and the college fund for me and my sister. When I turned 18, it was a very proud day for my family and I. Dad always said, From now on, it will be a tradition in our family that we serve this great country which has blessed us so much. Before our kids leave for college, they must serve a few years in the armed forces of the United States. There, you'll meet other people of other nationalities and customs. You'll serve together and become a team together. You will adapt and overcome many challenges together. And when you leave the military, you will see how America is such a great melting pot of people, cultures, and ideas. When you take that experience to college, you'll be all the more better experienced and mature than your peers. I was prouder still the day that I graduated from the U.S. Marine Corps boot camp in Paris Island, South Carolina. The training was tough, but the training had to be tough if you wanted to earn the right to be one of the few and the proud. I'm only five foot five, but I was also a fast runner and could navigate any obstacle course with ease, so the drill sergeants gave me the nickname Bambi. I'd lost about 15 pounds during my time there, but it was replaced with rock-hard muscle and the confidence to know that I was the deadliest weapon on the battlefield. Standing there, sharp and lean in my dress blues with my fellow platoon of marines, I still remember the look of immense pride in the faces of my father and my mother and my little sister. Those looks turned to complete horror on that terrible and tragic morning. My father said that he was looking for locations to open a third store in New York City when we saw the smoke rising from the island as the buildings collapsed. 
In the United States, my country, the one which had taken care of my family and protected us with freedoms that are not enjoyed by so many others, had been attacked. We were at war. I was attending the Mountain Warfare Training Center in Bridgeport, California, when I got word that my unit, back at 29 Palms, was going to war to hit back at the bastards who had killed thousands of innocent people. To tell you the truth, I think at the time we all wanted to go to war. We were Marines, dammit. You attack our country, we'll blow yours to hell. On my last phone call home before leaving for Afghanistan, my mother was sobbing telling me to be safe and come home when it was all over. My sister was also crying, but I told her to be brave and assured her that what I was doing was to keep her safe. But what really broke my heart was my father's voice. He'd always been so confident and strong. He always knew exactly what to say to give me confidence. However, in a shaky voice, he could only say, I love you, son. It cannot be underestimated, the horrors and atrocities that the enemy had inflicted upon the people of Afghanistan. Men, women, children, babies, whole families, and even entire villages were wiped out by the Taliban. So I had absolutely zero sympathy for them when we called in a tactical airstrike, and our AH-1 Viper attack helicopters rained brimstone and hellfire on them. In combat... The Taliban were complete cowards, hiding behind the very same women and children that they'd been brutalizing. I was part of a reconnaissance squad in my battalion's reconnaissance platoon. The squad usually operated in a six-man team under command of a sergeant, and all four of the teams were under command of a lieutenant. We were operating in heavily mountainous terrain just east of Bagram Air Base in Parwan Province, patrolling the steep rises, the jagged hilltops and valleys, and the numerous cave systems, relentlessly looking for the elusive enemy. At least two or three Taliban mortar positions had been shelling Bagram Air Base at night, so we were being sent out to find them. My six-man recon team consisted of our team leader, Staff Sergeant Perez, a short, stocky, by-the-book marine with a permanent buzz cut who was originally from Mexico City, Mexico, Completely fearless and a natural leader, Sergeant Perez was a former drill sergeant who volunteered to deploy to Afghanistan. Our radio operator was a young Filipino, private first class named Lampas, who was originally from Davao in the Philippines. Because he was the newest member of the team, Lampas had to hump the radio. The team's M249 squad automatic weapon gunner was Big Lance Corporal Deline, a young black marine from Brooklyn, Illinois. We had what is called a LAV-25 attached to our squad. A LAV, or Light Armored Vehicle, is an eight-wheeled armored reconnaissance vehicle that mounted a 25mm chain gun and two smaller machine guns mounted on the turret. The LAV's commander was Sergeant Big Mac McCaustin, the only marine in the squad who was shorter than I was. But the white marine from Clawson, Michigan was built like a brick wall. He'd been preparing to become a wrestler on our US Olympic team, but put that aside to come to Afghanistan to fight the Taliban terrorists. Corporal Pinkerton was the only other white marine in the squad. He was from the small town of Weed, California, and yes, he was a stoner before he joined the Corps, 
and found that he had a knack to fix just about anything that had gears and wheels. I was the squad's grenadier. My M4 rifle had what was called an M203 grenade launcher slug under the barrel of the rifle which could launch a variety of 40mm grenades at the enemy. Over my vest, which carried my rifle ammunition, I also wore a second vest, which had small compartments for my grenades. I had HE high explosive grenade rounds, incendiary rounds, smoke rounds, and even CS tear gas grenades. I was like the squad's mini artillery. The M203 was breech loaded, meaning that you had to break the M203 in half, load a single grenade into the rear of the launcher, then close the launcher again. When firing the M203, it gave off a soft but satisfying thump noise. As such, the M203 was affectionately known as the Thumper, and because I still retain my nickname from basic training, my weapon and I were known collectively as Bambi and Thumper. Our recon squad could lay down a tremendous amount of firepower, and we collectively piled into our Lab 25 and left Bagram just before midnight headed into enemy territory. Guided by the moonlight and his night vision goggles, Corporal Pinkerton drove us over the rocky terrain as we rumbled roughly due west towards the jagged stone mountains about four miles distant. We had another recon team which was operating north of us whilst several other teams were airlifted and dropped on the ridgeline, so we weren't alone in this operation. But at this time, the U.S. was still in the process of bringing in more marines and army grunts into the theater, so we were pretty spread thin. Our objective was to observe a trail that our drones discovered which wound up in the narrow trails into the mountains, which ended at the mouth of a large cave hidden under a rocky overhang. The cave was located about 300 feet above the valley floor, and Pinkerton was able to get us up a narrow goat trail for about 200 feet before he had to pull off the trail. The goat trail was too narrow for the lav to go any further. Sergeant McAuston guided the lav back into a crevice about 100 feet and facing back down the trail we had just gone up. Inside that little rocky crevice, our giant lav was swallowed up in darkness. Even if the Taliban had night vision devices, they would have been hard-pressed to see our armored transport. Staff Sergeant Perez had Lampus, Deline, and me quietly dismount from the back ramp of the lav as we would have to climb the rest of the way to our objective. He told Sergeant McCoston and Corporal Pinkerton to stay with the lav and keep the gun turret pointed down the trail. Since the radio on the lav had a greater range than our man-portable radio, the lav would also act as a communication relay between our squad and Bagram. Using our night vision devices, Staff Sergeant Perez led us slowly and cautiously up the rocky trail, carefully looking for signs of booby traps, and cautioning us whenever the trail became so narrow that a wrong step would send one of us tumbling over the edge. Staff Sergeant Perez moved stealthily, as if he had owned the entire mountain and spoke with a confidence that made us all believe that we were the master of this valley of death. We moved slowly less than an arm's length from the marine in front of us. Private Lampus was behind Perez with the radio, and Deline was behind Lampus with the squad automatic weapon, while me and my trusty Thumper brought up the rear. We finally got to a somewhat level plateau on the ridge, and wisely, 
Staff Sergeant Perez decided to move us off of the trail, which leads to the mouth of the cave. He had us form a tight perimeter as we scanned our objective. The cave was about 25 feet from us. It was actually at the end of a cul-de-sac, where the goat trail ended at a steep drop. The cave was surrounded on two sides by sheer rock walls, with the steep drop-off directly to the left of the cave mouth. This meant that there was only one route in, and one route out of the cave. A rocky overhang extended about eight feet from the ceiling of the mouth of the cave, meaning that it would have been difficult to have spotted the cave entrance from the air. We need to get into a position above the cave on the rocks opposite where we can observe. Staff Sergeant Perez whispered. I'll go, Sergeant, I said, having just gone to the mountain warfare course. Okay, Bambi, said Perez. Hand me your weapon so that it won't hinder you, and be careful. I handed my weapon off to Deline, and backtracked about ten feet down the trail where I remember seeing a path which led up to the side of a trail. This side path was even narrower than the one we were on, and the footing was even more precarious as the loose gravel and stones rent to twist feet and ankles. Finally, however, I came to a rock ledge about five feet high and hauled myself up and over, hugging the ground once I had gotten up. I discovered that I was on a relatively flat surface, roughly ten feet long by four feet wide, and surrounded on three sides by rock outcroppings, that were between three to four feet high. About fifteen feet below me, and about one hundred feet away, was the mouth of the cave. This couldn't have been a more perfect spot to observe what Captain Taliban and his band of merry lunatics were up to. I climbed back off the spot and carefully made my way back down to the squad where I reported to Staff Sergeant Perez what I had found. Good work, Bambi, Staff Sergeant Perez said. Stay close behind me, and let's go check it out. I guided him up the same narrow path that I took, with Lampus and Deline following close behind, until we finally made it up the rock ledge. Perez hauled himself up, and, staying low, pulled all of us up the ledge. This'll do fine, he whispered. Bambi, you hunger down on the far left and scan everything forward and to our left. Deline... Get in the middle and train your saw at the mouth of the cave. Lampus, I need you to keep an eye on the trail and make sure nobody can get behind us. Here, let me have the radio. It had taken us almost an hour to get into position, and Staff Sergeant Perez called Sergeant McCoston back at the lav, telling him that we were set. McCoston reported that one of our recon squads to the north of us had spotted suspected enemy movement in a shallow ravine between two low hills. Good copy said Perez. Keep us informed of any movement coming up that trail. Out. We hunkered down on the hard rocky plateau, trying to get as comfortable as we could whilst making as little noise as possible. It was a cold night on that ridge, and winds would periodically whip up, making the night air even colder. At first, I thought they were crazy to issue Generation 3 cold-weather gear for the desert, but now I knew why. But even with thermal underclothes, fleece jacket, a wool balaclava, and our uniforms, it was still rather chilly. We were all lying prone on the cold ground, peering over the rocks and looking down at nothing but an empty cave mouth at the end of a lonely trail whilst our brothers and another squad were in contact with possible enemy forces.
It was about two in the morning and my eyes were getting crossed, looking through my NVGs into the dark. I could feel myself dozing off when suddenly, behind us about two miles from our location, a bright light, followed by white smoke, seemed to loom out of the ground and ascend into the air, headed towards Bagram. The Taliban's fired a Chinese 122mm surface-to-surface rocket at the airbase, whispered Sergeant Perez. We watched helplessly as the unguided rocket looped and descended towards our base. Seconds later, four bright orange flares blossomed in the sky above the Taliban launch site as the Americans marked the enemy position. In the clear night, we could see flashes of weapon fire in the distance and the noise of a firefight going on. All this was soon drowned out as red lights, resembling laser-like fingers of death, reached out of the sky and struck the Taliban's position. The noise, like a buzzsaw, ripped the air, and even we could feel the slight vibrations on the ground as thousands of rounds of hot lead rained down on the Taliban. Looks like Spectre is up tonight, said Sergeant Perez, grinning. Spectre is the code name for one of our AC-130 transport planes modified to carry an astonishing array of weaponry and firepower, which the US Air Force rains down on the bad guys. Soon, however, the brief light show was over, and just as quickly as it had started, the valley was now deathly quiet again. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. What is horror to you? Monsters? Murder? Mystery? Well, if human monsters are your thing, June's Journey is the game for you, albeit in a more light-hearted tone. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too, in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. McCostin called Perez from the lab, saying that the Taliban had gotten off one of the three missiles that they intended to fire at the base, and that some of Captain Taliban's merry lunatics were headed eastwards in our general direction. Perez said that was a good copy, and instructed McCostin to keep us updated before turning to us and saying, Heads up, Marines. We may have hostiles approaching soon. All of a sudden, all thoughts of getting a few minutes of sleep went right out of the window. 
Our weapons were all locked and loaded, and my thumper had a 40mm HE high-explosive grenade already loaded into the breach. I thought for a moment, and decided to silently eject that HE round from my grenade launcher and placed it back into one of the pouches. I reached into another pouch and pulled out an incendiary round and loaded into my thumper. If the Taliban were hiding 122mm rockets in that cave, an incendiary round would ignite the propellant, causing the rockets to explode. We lay there motionless for another three hours, as no further action had been taking place anywhere in the area. It was just after five in the morning, and the darkness around us was ever so slightly lightening into a dark purple sky. We got movement to our direct front, whispered Sergeant McAustin from the lav. I count five, six, seven, at least a dozen personnel moving up the trail towards your position. They seem to be armed with AKs. Looks like they've been wounded. Roger. Perez whispered into the hand mic. Relay to headquarters what we have and maintain observation. Perez handed the mic back to Lampus and said, Stay alert, Marines. We have movement coming up the trail. It was still too dark to see without our night vision goggles, and the suspected Taliban approaching the cave entrance were lighting their way using cheap flashlights. Sure enough, there was about a dozen men armed with AK-47s approaching the cave, two of them lying on makeshift stretchers. None of the men were carrying anything larger than AK-47. They had no mortars or rockets. Now, the rules of engagement at the time were pretty sketchy, since it was legal to own AK-47s. We couldn't just assume that these were the Taliban. We had to actually see them commit a criminal act before we could do anything. For all we knew, these could have just been local farmers who got caught up in the fighting, and were just trying to get away. Maybe this cave was where they hid from the Taliban. Despite everything that was going on, despite the fact that thousands of innocents died on American soil, we still insisted on giving everyone here the benefit of the doubt. Everyone was considered innocent until they were utterly shown that they intended to commit a hostile act. The armed men seemed to show no concern about being tactically silent, and weren't worried at all when they may have been under observation by U.S. Marines. The heavily bearded young man, who seemed to be the leader of the group, tried to usher the men carrying the two stretchers into the cave. Strangely, however, some of the men seemed reluctant to enter the safety of the cave, and had, in fact, dropped the two wounded men on the ground. The leader loudly clambered around into his AK-47, yelling in Pashtun, and pointing towards the cave entrance. The yelling went on for several seconds before the men who refused to go into the cave finally relented, and they all disappeared into the entrance. "'What you make of that, Sergeant?' whispered Deline. "'Different families, different factions, different tribes,' said Perez. "'All these people know is conflict and strife.' "'Do you think they're Taliban?' said Lampus. "'Maybe,' said Perez. "'Or maybe not.' They are friendly. We're obliged to help their wounded. Stay calm for now. About another five minutes passed when a loud barking roar, something like a dog's bark combined with a bear's growl, boomed from the cave. Several men screamed and we could hear the frantic, undisciplined sounds of AK-47 rifle fire coming from inside of the cave, followed by the flashes of muzzle fire. 
The earlier argument had seemingly reached a boiling point, and the two factions of the same group turned violent against each other. But instead of us hearing voices of rage, it seemed like all of the men shooting inside the cave were filled with voices of fear. This lasted for several seconds as the sounds of men fighting and apparently dying abruptly ceased, along with the rifle fire. Then, there was silence, as something big but unseen seemed to be stirring inside of the cave. Sergeant Perez, are you in contact? It was Sergeant McAustin calling from the lav. Negative, replied Perez. Refine. Apparently there's some kind of altercation inside the cave and a lot of shooting. Call this in to Bagram. Roger. White one. Several minutes passed as McCoston reported the incident back to base. Meanwhile, we kept our eyes laser-focused on the cave. Whatever was moving around in there, perhaps a wounded man, had stopped. Headquarters wants us to maintain observation and secure the position. Radioed McCoston from the lav. Company commander is sending up a relief platoon later in the morning once it gets lighter. Seems like they're still clearing the area from last night's attack. We sat for an undetermined amount of time as the sky slowly went from a dark purple to a dark blue with hints of red as the sun began crawling its way into the sky. Still, everything was silent inside the cave. We need to get in and see what's going on, said Perez. There may be injured people that need assistance. Bambi, take point. Moving, Sergeant, I said, happy to be able to get up and stretch my aching back and leg muscles. Delane, said Perez. Take slack. Move inside, said Delane as he hefted to his saw and followed me. Soon we were all down from our elevated perch and moving back down the narrow path towards the main trail. It was lighter now, so the going was smoother and faster, though no less precarious. We no longer needed our NVGs to see the path ahead of us. Sergeant Perez stopped us at the point where we stepped into the trail. Delane, take up a second firing position here and watch your backs. Maybe coming out of there in a hurry. I'm on it, Sergeant, said Delane as he scooted a few feet back up the path to where he was in some cover and could watch the cave. Let's move, instructed Sergeant Perez as all three of us combat rushed across the trail and stacked on the right side of the cave entrance. Even standing outside, we could smell the scent of blood and carnage wafting from inside the cave, like a slaughterhouse of raw flesh. I was in front, with Perez directly behind me, and Lampus behind him. Perez said nothing, simply holding up three fingers. Two fingers. One. Go. Just as we trained, I went in first, swiftly covering everything to my front and to the left with my weapon. Simultaneously, Perez came in behind me and swept right whilst Lampus immediately followed and swept front to rear. All of a sudden, behind me I heard Lampus retching as he stepped back. Oh my god, he whispered, horrified that he had stepped into a pile of human entrails. My eyes began adjusting to the darkness inside of the cave, and I heaved as I saw the bodies and pieces of bodies stacked up like cordwood next to a wall deeper inside the cave, while all around us, piles of innards and guts had been strewn across the floor and the walls. There was blood and streaks of blood everywhere. Without realizing it, 
I had lowered my weapon and was walking deeper into the cave. Hold your positions, hissed Sergeant Perez. Take a knee and scan your Something seemed to fall from the height of the cave ceiling. Something big and hairy that smelled of wet and moldy fur. It landed directly behind me and I felt something slam into my back and ribs like a baseball bat. I went flying into the side of the cave wall and slumped down with my ears ringing and the wind knocked out of me. I turned around and propped my back against the wall, my head spinning. Whatever this thing was had its back towards me now. It was covered in short fur and easily stood above eight feet tall. From behind, I could see that it had canine-like ears and legs like a dog or a wolf and arms that were hideously long and muscular. The thing was facing Sergeant Perez who tried to raise his M4 to fire, but the thing backhanded Perez so hard that it was sent tumbling out of the cave. I watched in horror as Sergeant Perez's body tumbled over the ravine and fell from view. Lampus was to the creature's left and he opened up with his M4. At this close range, Lampus couldn't miss as he put at least five to six rounds center mass of the creature. However, the creature only looked annoyed as it swept out at Lampus. Lampus jumped back and slipped on the same pile of entrails he had stepped in earlier. With Lampus now on his back, the creature stalked towards him. I reached for my weapon and found that I didn't have it anymore. Looking around, I saw that I dropped it right where the creature had hit me. My thumper was laying at the creature's feet, or paws, or whatever those massive things were. Still groggy from the blow I took, I drunkly ran towards the creature and dived for my weapon, and fell far short. The creature closed in on Lampus as Lampus struggled to pull his kabar from its sheath. Suddenly, the entrance to the cave darkened as another figure entered. Son of a yelled Deline as he lifted his saw and put an eight-round burst directly into the creature's guts. Then another, then another. The creature let out a pained howl and jumped nearly fifteen feet towards Deline, knocking the saw out of Deline's hands and slamming him to the ground. Deline's distraction gave me the second I needed to get up and grab my thumper. Charging at the creature from behind and to its left, I screamed a battle cry. Arrgh! as I rammed him as hard as I could with the entire right side of my body. To my surprise, the creature went off balance, but so did I. I was now lying about eight feet in front of the creature, with Delina Lampus standing behind me near the mouth of the cave. I was again on my back, lying in a pile of human gore as I leveled my weapon up at the creature. I could now get a look at its face. It definitely had canine features, with a short snout, wide jaws, and horrifically sharp and blood-stained teeth. Get down, get down, get down! I yelled at Lampus and Deline. What are you? Said Deline. Oh shit! Yelled Lampus. The creature opened its maw wide in an angry growl just as my weapon went thump. It was late in the afternoon when we were all finally piled into the back of the lath. Corporal Pinkerton driving us all back to Bagram after this long patrol. A platoon of marines and some army EOD guys had arrived later on in the morning, and together we estimated that there were the bodies of at least 10 to 12 Taliban fighters inside of the cave. 
We knew they were Taliban, because the EOD guys also found fragments of at least two Chinese 122mm rockets and three Russian 82mm mortars, as well as some destroyed RPGs. They also found the rear hindquarters of what had to be a huge dog, which they assumed the Taliban were using as a watchdog to guard their stash of high explosives. When I fired my 40mm incendiary grenade at the Taliban fighters who were shooting at us, it set off their munitions and pretty much blew them all to hell. At least that's what Sergeant Perez told the intel guys when they questioned us about the engagement, and the rest of us backed up Sergeant Perez's story. I really don't know how long I was unconscious after I force-fed that creature an incendiary grenade. I only remember waking up and being dragged across the ground and out into the sunlight by Lampus and Deline. Deline came running when he saw Sergeant Perez being tossed out of the cave like a ragdoll and over the side of the ravine. Fortunately, Perez fell on a ledge just six feet below the ravine and was groggy and woozy when we finally pulled him back up onto the trail. Since it was likely that the Taliban would use the cave again after we left, Perez suggested that our EOD guys blow the living crap out of the cave, and the EOD guys were more than happy to oblige. They wired C4 all over the unexploded Taliban ordnance inside the cave, and wired the overhang of the cave entrance, and detonated the charges in a booming explosion that knocked my lungs into my skull. It was beautiful. And when the smoke cleared, there was just a pile of rocks where the cave used to be. The four of us were sitting in the back of the laugh as we rumbled towards the base. Sergeant Perez's arm was in a sling from his fall, and I had a nice big bandage on my head from where I was hit. Delane was scooping spaghetti and meatballs from an MRE into his mouth, and Lampus nearly threw up again. Man, how can you eat that? Lampus said. I'm hungry. Mama Deline always told me that fighting werewolves is hard work, so eat as much as you can when you can. I shook my head and leaned back, closing my eyes and letting the rumble of the lab's engines rock me to sleep. I think the sun coming up weakened the creature, said Lampus. That's why we were able to hurt it. What do you think it was, Sergeant? asked Deline. Staff Sergeant Perez, as pragmatic as he was stoic, simply shrugged. I don't know. I don't care if you're some mythical, bulletproof, where-whatever-the-hell-you-are. If a marine thumps an incendiary grenade down your throat, you're a rug, baby. I've since been promoted to the rank of Staff Sergeant, and because of that, I'm required to surrender my beloved Thumper for a regular M4 rifle. I haven't, though. I've kept my same Thumper through one combat tour of Afghanistan and three to Iraq. So, sleep well. Bambi and Thumper got your back. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. The Dogman in the Window By Anonymous 2008 
I believe I saw something resembling an alleged dogman. Or maybe it was a skinwalker. Either way, I know I saw something out of my window on a nearby abandoned house on my street. For anonymity's sake, I'll refer to myself as D, and my dad will be J, my uncle will be A, and my grandparents will be T and L. We live on a semi-rural street in Virginia, and there's only about four houses on this said street. We're the type of neighborhood that everyone knows everybody, and our neighbors are our relatives. I live with my dad and my grandparents in the house at the very end of the street, with my uncle A living closest to the top of the road. We're very lucky to live in this house because we're the closest to the woods. We saw lots of deer, well, turkeys, rabbits, even a few bears. Unfortunately, I think that's what attracted this thing to our neighborhood. Well, maybe it was because I own a lot of books and items that are associated with occultism. Yeah, I admit, it wasn't the best type of thing to own, especially when I was raised to be a Christian. But it was a guilty pleasure of mine. Anyway, right next to A's house, there's an abandoned house. Now, this house used to belong to my great-grandparents. My grandparents' parents. But the house has been abandoned since they passed away. This is where the creature usually shows up. I first heard about this dogman from my grandma when she used to tell me stories about mysterious creatures and entities, much to the dismay of my dad. Ma, stop filling Dee's head with that nonsense. She's still a kid, she'll get nightmares. He'd always say. Then my grandma shot back. It's not nonsense, Jay, they're real. Yeah, that was my grandma for you. She and my grandpa grew up in rural Virginia back in the day, so it wasn't surprising they had a few tales and encounters to share. My dad, however, didn't like them telling me scary stories, and he was always worried that I'll start believing in that stuff too. Some of the stories I believed, but they didn't scare me. Not like my dad thought they would. But I remember one story in particular that still sends chills down my spine to this day. This particular story was told by my grandpa and grandma, and it was about a Native American curse. And the story goes that a shaman possessed the power to transform into a werewolf-like creature. That's the way my grandparents described it. And he slaughtered many innocent people, not just in his tribe, but of neighboring tribes and European settlers too. My grandparents described this part to me in great detail. Eventually, his powers and black magic were discovered by the tribe, and he was banished. Soon, the tribe's warriors tracked him down and killed him whilst he was in his wolf state. Then, in his last dying breath, he put a curse on the land, and said he would come back for their lives. My grandparents say that when his spirit is near, all of the wildlife disappears and goes quiet. The presence of death itself can be felt in the air, and he can be seen as something half-man and half-wolf. I laughed it off, as I usually did, saying that there's no such thing as werewolves. But my grandpa leaned down and said, It isn't a werewolf. Something else. Something evil. With me being only six years old when I first heard this, I was chilled to the bone. But it definitely made me more cautious about being out in the woods. Now I'll stop boring you with all the extra lengthy prologue and I'll get straight to the encounter. 
I remember the first encounter with that thing like it happened yesterday. I was 12 years old at the time, and I was in the nearby field looking for deer tracks. I was in that field all afternoon, and I had already found a deer antler. By the time I was almost to the end of the field, it was already sunset. I decided to finish up and come back in the morning, but first I wanted to show my uncle the deer antler that I had found. As I walked up the street, I noticed a strong smell of what I could only describe as a mix of wet dog, a dead bear rotting in the summer sun, and coyote urine. I ignored it and kept on walking up the street. When I was getting close to the abandoned house, something big in the window caught my eye. The odor was strongest here, and only then did I notice that all of the sounds of the forest were silent. I felt an odd, indescribable chill that went down my spine, and I felt the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I slowly turned my head, more slowly than I'd ever turned before, towards the window. When I saw what was in the window, I froze like a deer in the headlights, and I felt like I was having a heart attack with how fast it was racing. The thing in the window was bent down, allowing its ugly, deformed face to be seen outside. As with many other descriptions of similar creatures, this thing was tall. Otherwise, it wouldn't be bent down to look at me. I could see a lot of detail, but it was getting dark, and there was little to no light in the house. But what I could see was the silhouette of a large, wolfman-like abomination, and two glowing red eyes. Its front paws were more like raccoon hands, and they were resting on the windowsill. We stared at each other for what felt like an eternity, before its lips curled back to form a sick, malicious smile like some psychotic man. I froze still, gripping the deer antler, and I was too afraid to move. I considered using the antler to defend myself, but then I realized how big that thing was. I realized that this little buck's antler was not going to do any good against this creature. I wanted to scream. I wanted to run back home to my dad and grandparents, but I was paralyzed with fear. Just then, the creature moved towards the broken down door and stood in the threshold. Suddenly, my Uncle A dashed to my side with his gun and holster on. He screamed at me to get behind him. He shot at it, and it let out a horrible, distorted, almost human-like scream. Uncle A kept shooting at it, and it ran off into the woods. There was a small moment of silence. Then he turned to me and asked what I was doing outside after dark. I told him that I was looking for deer tracks, and I saw the thing looking at me through the window. He looked at me. Not saying a word, then he looked down as if to think. Then he looked at me again and said in a serious tone, Don't go out at night. Stay out of the woods. After that, he walked me back home. He also told me not to speak about this. I wasn't sure why he told me this part, but I never spoke about this particular encounter again. About two years later, the first encounter had just turned into a repressed memory. I didn't think about it often, but when I did, I felt the same fear I felt as if I were reliving it all over again. Now, my second encounter was somehow worse than the first. It was a few days after my 14th birthday, and it was after dark. 
I tend to have a habit of staying up late, so this led to me staying up until around 2am. On this particular night, around 3.30am, I was getting ready for bed when I heard a tap on the window. I turned towards it, only to see nothing. I assumed it was just a bug flying into the window, and I resumed my bedtime routine. Soon, I turned the lights out and climbed into bed. But of course, I couldn't sleep, so I started scrolling through TikTok, YouTube, and Tumblr. I know it's not the best thing to do when you're trying to sleep, but I didn't care. Just when I was about to click on another video, I heard that tapping noise again. Annoyed, I turned towards the window. Now, the window I'm talking about is right in front of the foot of my bed. When I looked at the window, I saw a familiar, eerie silhouette. At once, I knew that the thing was back. Once again, its poor hands were resting on the bottom of the window, and it was staring at me. Only this time, it had a small dead animal in its toothy jaws, and it had blood on its muzzle. Still staring at me, it tilted its head back, and opened its jaws to eat the small creature. This thing swallowed it whole without even chewing. I swear to God, I was panicking after watching it eat the entire animal. Fun fact about me, at the time I recently found out I have severe anxiety, and I'm extremely prone to panic attacks, and unfortunately this encounter and trauma from my past encounter triggered a massive panic attack. If you've ever experienced a panic attack, you'll know that the symptoms are similar to a heart attack. Rapid heartbeat, sweating, heavy breathing, feeling dizzy, and it feels like you're about to die. So there I was, lying in bed while having a god-awful panic attack and a wolf demon staring at me through the window. I gripped my chest and I felt my heart drumming in it. I tried to calm down and I tried to control my breathing, but I was panicking and I couldn't stop. As I looked back at this wolf creature, it had its blood-covered poor hand on the glass. Then everything went black. When I woke up, it was 10.30 in the morning. I shot right out of bed, reached for the baseball bat I kept next to my bed, gripping in my hands, but there was nothing at the window. All that remained of the creature from the night before was a bloody paw print. This was my last encounter with the creature but I still see glimpses of it by the tree line to this day. I have many questions. What was this creature? Where did it come from? Why didn't it break into my house when it was fully capable of doing so? And why didn't it kill me when it had the chance? All I know is that this creature wasn't normal. Ever since the last close encounter with that thing, my little chihuahua dog always goes crazy at night. There haven't been any deer or small animals around. It knows where we live. And I haven't been able to sleep at night since. A Dog's Body with Human Hands and Feet By Avery999 It was August and my cousin's ages ranged from 10 to 15, and I was the youngest being 10. I was staying with an 11, 13, and 14-year-old. We stayed up telling scary stories often. But one night, a few weeks in, we decided to make a campfire at back. 
My grandma's house is in a rural suburb. The neighbors aren't too far when you're driving down the road to her house. But in the backyard, it's thick forest with man-made paths through it. Each house is on a hill, so only part of the basement was actually underground. That isn't important until later, though. So we're towards the east side of her yard, in a smallish patch of open land. You couldn't see the neighbor's yards from here, and there was probably three quarters of a mile to each side of us that belonged to my grandma. It was maybe eleven at night, and we were playing truth or dare after telling scary stories, and my fourteen-year-old cousin dared me and the thirteen-year-old to go for a walk through the paths for ten minutes or so. I said yes right away. I wasn't easily scared, and rather level-headed for my age, but my older cousin was a bit more hesitant. We didn't bring a flashlight because it wasn't pitch dark yet, and we could see enough to not die. We were walking through the paths for about five minutes, and could barely see the fire through the trees when we decided to turn. In the middle of the path was a large dog-like creature, hunched over with its front hands an inch from the ground. What I remember the most was how its eyes were so bright white. It was humanoid, dog-shaped, with a human-like head, but a dog-like body, human hands and feet. It looked right at us, and I know I was paralyzed with fear as it dashed away the opposite direction from us, towards the creek that ran through the yard. Eventually, my cousin and I screamed bloody effing murder, and the other cousin and my grandma ran to us. I don't remember much here because I was really disoriented and I couldn't think properly. But I did wake up in bed, so I assume I was brought to the house. All the kids slept in the basement, in the big room with sliding glass doors to the outside, as the room was on the side that wasn't underground. My bed was pressed against a big glass window, and I could see my cousins playing outside down below. The house is in Michigan, so it gets slightly chilly, even in the end of August, and there was a slight breeze, so I put my jacket on and ran to join them outside skipping breakfast, not wanting to miss out on anything fun. When I got down, I could tell they weren't playing, but rather running to get my grandma. Her dogs, both of them, were dead. Ripped up. That night, we went to bed early. I woke up at maybe two in the morning because I felt like something hit my head. My cousins were all sitting on the double bed opposite me on the other side of the room. There was one bunk bed and two double beds, the double beds for me and my 14-year-old cousin. They were being quiet and staring at me. The 13-year-old nodded his head towards the window. I froze. They all looked afraid. I turned my head slightly to the side and I saw a really messed up looking face pressed against the window with gaping eyes looking down at me. I screamed so loud and it bolted. My grandma called the police after I told her what had happened, and they found nothing. I went home after that, and I've never been there during the night again. Something kept staring at me every night. By snow isn't great. I know I'm going to sound crazy for this, but I know what I saw. I was in 7th or 6th grade, standing at the slider door waiting for my dog Moose to come back to the door when suddenly I saw something in the far end of the backyard, 
behind the pool my dad had set up during the summer. There was a growling, wolf-like creature. It seemed like it was running in place, but the thing was, I don't live around any woods where a wolf would live. I live in a town where there are lots of people, and there shouldn't have been any wolves. Maybe a wolf dog, but no actual wolves. Once I let Moose in, I went to my room and curled up with my dog Gabby, who was a small chihuahua. I couldn't shake the feeling there was actually a wolf outside. When I opened the slider before going to bed, the wolf was still there, so I knew it wasn't just a trick of the light. Weeks went by and I was still seeing it. I kept telling my mum, but she said I was just seeing things as a trick of the light, so one day I grew tired of being told this, took out my phone to take a picture of it, turned off the flash and everything, and looked up from my phone to ensure it was still there. But when I looked at my phone, it wasn't there. A week later, or maybe the same week, I woke up for school looking for my dog Gabby. I found her by the door. She died of old age. I was devastated because of this, but kept seeing this glowing wolf for a few weeks longer. Then it had a form of comfort towards me. Only when it left, there was another wolf-like figure. Only this one. It was like it was made of shadows. It had brighter, red glowing eyes. To this day, even two years later, I have no idea what those things were. Maybe an omen of death? And life. But I'm not really sure. Dogman Battle by Achilles57 This is from a while ago. My cousin Mark, he called me and told me that one of his buddies had been hurt on a hunting trip in Michigan. He asked me to come out and watch him whilst he and the rest went out to try and find the animal that actually hurt him. I drove out to his hunting cabin on the northern tip of Michigan. When I arrived, he was waiting for me on the front yard, completely decked out in Kevlar, a 50 caliber hunting rifle and two 45 caliber pistols, three bowie knives, a boot knife in each of his boots, a riot shield and a riot helmet. Two of his other buddies, the ones that weren't hurt, were decked out in full riot gear with old M4 rifles that they got from a military surplus store. I grabbed my old M4 grenade rifle that I had gotten from my great-grandfather before he passed away, and his old medic bag. I went inside the house into the living room and sat down in a recliner on the deck next to Andy, who had been hurt. He was wrapped completely head to toe in white wrap as well as a stretchy kind of bandage. I could tell he was really hurt. I just couldn't tell how badly. As the three of the men ran into the woods, I leaned back and put my old M4 grenade rifle across my lap, put my feet on the railing and waited. Soon I started to hear weird sounds. There was a guttural roar coming from the woods. What looked like a giant black shape was ghosting in between the trees. Then out of nowhere come the shouts. I heard Mark and his two other buddies scream in terror, and that's when I heard their guns start to go off. It sounded like a war zone. I knew Andy could easily defend himself if I moved him inside, so I grabbed him, put him in a wheelchair, and rolled him inside. I handed him one of my old 45s, ran up onto the deck, and jumped over the railing, running into the woods, loading my M4 and getting ready for a fight. I ran until I entered a clearing. There in the clearing was one of Mark's buddies on the ground, bleeding badly. 
I ran up to him, sliding down beside him and started to patch what wounds I could with what medicine I had. All around me were gunshots, screams, howls and roars. I couldn't tell which way Mark and the other one of his buddies had gone. I tried to find him as soon as I could. I ran straight left once I was sure that the wounded body was safe and high enough up in a tree. Instead of finding Mark, I found his other buddy. Head torn clean off of his shoulders. I knew there was nothing I could do, so I just covered him up with branches and covered him with a blanket to try and keep the animals from seeing him and smelling him. That's when I heard the ping of Mark's M1. I ran into the direction of the ping, pulling out my 45 as I was pretty sure it was going to be a very close fight, meaning I wasn't going to be able to use my rifle. I burst out of the trees, and right in front of me was a hulking black shape that looked like a werewolf from all those old TV movies I'd watched. I took aim and fired four rounds right into its back. It gave a grunt, turned, and growled at me. That's when I saw the teeth stained red. I looked behind it and saw Mark crawling away, one of his legs broken. I knew this fight could probably be my last, but if I could give Mark even a little bit of time to get to his wounded body and get out of the forest to Andy, call the authorities and get out of there, I was going to take it. I readied my pistol, aimed and let loose a hail of bullets. The beast gave a terrifying howl straight up into the night sky. All I could see was its eyes as they glowed red in the night. I charged, still firing. As I fired my last bullet, I dropped my gun and drew one of my knives. I slashed as I spun to the right and I could feel blood leap from the beast's chest onto my face. I spun back around, jumped and stabbed the knife down as hard as I could. I felt the knife go into something. I couldn't see anything due to the blood and how dark it was, but I knew that I'd hit it. It let out another terrifying screech of pain and rage. It threw me from its back and ran deep into the woods. I drew my M1 and started firing as it retreated. Upon hearing the ping of my M1, Mark opened fire with his own. I reloaded my pistol, grabbed Mark and started dragging him backwards as he fired. When his weapon pinged, I started firing with my pistol. We made it back to his wounded body. I put my pistol away, grabbed him, and started pulling him back. We got back to the house where Andy had already called the police and the park rangers. When I pulled them out of the forest, still firing their weapons, the police ran up and started firing their own weapons into the night. They obviously knew what we were both shooting at. I didn't know then and there if that thing was gone for good. But as we went back to civilization, I was driving my Humvee down the road following the ambulance all the way to the hospital. When all of a sudden bursting out of the woods and onto the road in front of me was the very same black creature. Most people say slam on the brakes, but I did the opposite. I slammed on the gas and ran that thing over. When I knocked it over and I turned around, I parked my car right on top of it. I got out pulled out my pistol and unloaded four magazines straight into its skull point-blank. A police car pulled up beside me, saw me shooting at its head, aimed his shotgun and blew the thing's head clean off point-blank with a 12-gauge shotgun filled with buckshot. We hauled the thing off to the vet. The vet then cut it open to find out what it had been eating. That's when we noticed dog tanks. They're old dog tags that were covered in rust. When we traced the dog tags, we found out that they'd come from a cemetery near the hospital. 
we'd later return the dog tags to the families of the people that had lost them. That's my story. I'm sworn to avenge my cousin's dead friend no matter what. The next time I see one of those dogmen in Michigan, I'm going to kill it. I'm going to make sure that it serves as a message to all others that if you mess with humans, you unlock our true rage. And we can be truly terrifying when we want to be. Thanks for taking the time to join us for a few true tales this evening. I do ever so hope you enjoyed them. If you have a story of your own to share, send them to me at eeriecast.com forward slash outdoor, where we pay three cents per word. And stop by eeriecast.com if you want to hear more scary stories from our team. If you want to hear more from me specifically, you can find me on youtube.com forward slash nature's temper. If you've truly enjoyed tonight's stories, please leave Outdoor Terrors a rating and review on Spotify and Apple. Thank you very much, and I'll see you next time, my little monsters. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.